Welcome. All right, Tim beat me to the punch, but I'm going to do it anyway. You ready? So, he is risen. Uh, I love that. We only get to do it once a year, but it's so cool. Welcome. Happy Easter. Thank you for joining us this morning. As Tim said, there's seats down front. If any of you want to move, you will not offend me if you're scurrying up or down or back or forth. Uh, If you've been to our church before, you know that I start pretty much every service with turn in your Bibles too, but because it is Easter, I'm going to start with turn in your textbooks too. If you have this textbook, I'm going to read something from my church history textbook in seminary. This is about a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp lives in the early 100s AD. He's just a couple generations after the original Christians. In fact, the guy who trained Polycarp to be a pastor had been trained to be a pastor by the Apostle John. So he's very close to those early Christians. Um, It is illegal to be a Christian at where he is when he's alive, and so he is eventually taken prisoner. He is brought before the magistrate. Like Jesus, he will be killed. Uh, He will not be crucified. He will be burned at the stake. And I want you to read, I want to read to you what happens to him. This is at his trial the day before he is executed. Um, The judge insisted and promised Polycarp that if he would only curse Christ, he would be set free. But Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? And so they go back and forth, they go through the trial, eventually he is convicted of not worshiping the emperor, which is illegal. He is tied to a stake, the wood and all the flammable stuff is put around him. As they are lighting the pyre, these are Polycarp's last words, I thank you, sovereign Lord, that you have deemed me worthy of this moment, so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. And he dies on fire. Um, and if you read the history of Christianity, or if you, if you read the uh, history of Christianity part one, which is the textbook I'm reading from, and, like that happens all the time. Jesus followers, especially in those first several centuries where the Roman Empire does not know what to do with them, they are murdered. They are killed for their faith. And wow, the stories, I mean, it's this kind of stuff. They have so much poise They have so much presence. They refuse to curse God. All they have to do is just curse Christ and then they can walk and go back to life. And over and over again, people won't do it. And they're dying. They're being killed. And they are praising God and thanking him. I want you to listen to how the scriptures describe how Jesus died. This is the night before Jesus dies. So it's a few hours before he'll be arrested and go on trial. Jesus went with his disciples to a garden, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go further on and pray. He took Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, along with him, and he was very sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will. But as you will, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, the night before he died, he's not calm, cool, and collected. Polycarp, Polycarp, calm, cool, no problems. Okay, fine, kill me, whatever. 
Jesus is begging God, is there any other way we could do this? Here's Jesus, one of some of Jesus' final words as he died. This is from the, book, uh, the Gospel of Mark. At noon, a darkness came over the whole land that lasted until three. And then at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic and means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Polycarp and scores of men and women die praising God. And Jesus dies crying out, why? Why have you abandoned me? You know, you, you hear all the time people saying, oh, the Gospels, you know, Jesus never did any of that. That was made up decades later. Those are his followers. They were trying to create a religion or a movement or something. So that's the stories they wrote. Seriously, is this what you would write for your hero? If you're trying to create a movement, anybody remember Braveheart? How does William Wallace die? They torture him to death, and what is he saying? Freedom! Right? They can't stop him from yelling, freedom, even as they kill him. What does Jesus yell as he die? dies? Why? Why have you abandoned me, God? Would you write this? Would this be the hero of your story if you were trying to start a movement? that your hero dies in agony, in anguish. It says he's sweating like he was bleeding. I mean, we don't know if that means he's sweating so hard like blood is literally coming out, which, which can happen, or it's like he's sweating so much it's as if you cut him and you know, blood just squirts out. That's how his sweat is coming out. Jesus does not die half as well as most all his followers do after him. Why? Why? Does Jesus die in anguish and, and misery? Did you hear what he said to God in his prayer? He actually said it three times. I didn't read all three of them. He said, Father, is there any way this cup, this cup can be taken away from me? In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, the, the, Jewish, the Jewish scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, the cup that God gives you to drink Wow, it is all throughout the Bible. And it is the cup of God's wrath. And it's bad. It's really bad. It's in scores of places throughout Scripture. I'm just going to read you one of them from Jeremiah chapter 25. So Jeremiah is a prophet and God is speaking to him. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah said. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Now prophesy against them and say this. The Lord will roam from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and he will roar mightily against his land. For the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind. And he will put the wicked to the sword. The Lord has declared it. Jesus says, I really, really don't want to drink this cup. Is there any other way? Jonathan Edwards, a pastor back in the 1700s, wrote a, wrote a great sermon, which we still have. You can read it about this. And he talks about what would it have been like for Jesus, who'd never done anything wrong, who was in communion 100% always with God, to see the cup. Edward says, you know, 
Jesus had to do this willingly. He couldn't be forced. He says that. You know, but he takes my life. I give it. He couldn't be forced to die. And he couldn't die not knowing what he was going into. He had to know, Edward says. And so, as he prayed, he began to see the cup. He began to see God's wrath. He began to see what was going to happen to him. Because it's, it's midnight. It's dark. He's in a garden outside the city of Jerusalem. The only people with him have all fallen asleep. He can walk away. He can just keep right on walking down across the valley. He can be gone before anybody wakes up, before anybody knew he was there. They'll come shortly after this and arrest him. But he's got this moment where he can just walk away. And he sees it. He sees what's going on. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is always in control. I mean, he is always so poised. People are constantly trying to trick him. And he sees right through them, and he flips it around. And they end up looking like idiots. People come along one time, and they're furious with him, and they want to kill him. And it says, he just walked right through the middle of them. They couldn't touch him. They come to another time. They love him. They want to make him king. He's like, no, it's not time. He just, he just walks away. Nobody can ever do anything to this guy until now. The night before he dies, he sees the cup of God's wrath. He knows what's going to happen to him. And he says, I don't want this. But if this is the only way, then not what I want, but what you want, Lord God. What you want, Father God. That, that cup of God's wrath. Did you hear what Jeremiah said? It's coming for everybody. God is going to judge all mankind. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, which is the end of the world and is, oh my gosh, it's full of plagues and hailstorms and, and trumpets and bowls and all this. The last bowl that's poured out is the cup of the wine of God's wrath that everyone is required to drink. And it, it, it makes them mad and you die. And Jesus saw that, Scripture says. And, and, and he, he was in agony. And it happened. That's why he is crying out on the cross to God, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because God has. That is the end of God's wrath, is that he abandons you. He says, okay. You know, C.S. Lewis, a famous writer from many years ago, the last century, said, you know, all of life eventually comes down to we either say to God, thy will be done, or we say to God, my will be done. It's going to be one of those two things for every person who ever lived. And Jesus says to God, thy will be done. And God abandons him because that's the end of God's wrath. That's what he will say to anybody who says to God, no, I'm, I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do what I want. God will say, okay, your will be done. Have it your way. You, you drink your own cup. You take your own punishment. You, you suffer. You pay for your life. Jesus is abandoned by God on the cross. Polycarp? No one after Jesus is ever abandoned by God. Why can Polycarp stand there, tied, burning, on fire? Because God is with him. God is right there with him. 
There's a hundred years after Polycarp, a woman will be again arrested for being a Christian. She's nine months pregnant. She gives birth in the jail. And as she's crying out in childbirth, the jailers start mocking her and saying to her, hey, lady, if you think this is bad, you wait to see what they do to you in the arena. And she says back to them, I am suffering alone now. But when I'm in the arena, arena, he will be there with me and he will take my sufferings. And a couple days later, she is put out into the arena. A bull that's been just whipped up into a frenzy is set loose on her, right? Knocks her down, throws her around, everything else. At one point, she will ask them to restrain the bull for a minute so she can put her hair back up. Because letting your hair down is a sign of mourning. And today is not a day to mourn, she says. Today is a day to rejoice. I'm going to be with my king. And then the bull refuses to attack her anymore. So they send soldiers out to spear her through. And she dies praising God. Because she wasn't alone. Because what happened to Jesus didn't happen to her. God was with her through all of that. That's how Jesus dies. Now I want to read you something else. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. So, when Jesus lives in the Roman Empire, when someone scores an incredible victory in the empire, he is given what's called a triumph. Triumph is that, have you ever seen a ticker tape parade? It's the Roman version of that. It's a giant parade through Rome. I want to read you the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on this. A triumph was given to a man who won a major land or sea battle and ended a war. The ceremony began with a solemn procession from the triumphal gate through to the temple of Jupiter on the Capitol Hill. So you're walking through Rome up to the highest hill in the hills of Rome. It passed through the forum and the sacred way along streets adorned with garlands and lined with people shouting. The magistrates and members of the senates would come first in the parade, followed by musicians, animals to be sacrificed at Jupiter's temples, the spoils of war, and captured prisoners in chains. Then, riding in a chariot with a laurels, the victorious general wore a purple robe and a gold tunic on his toga. He held a laurel branch in his right hand and an ivory scepter in his left. His men marched behind him. And what they're doing is they march through the streets, because the historians of the day will say that, like the streets of Rome just fill. Everyone in Rome comes to these things. Because all that loot they've captured, they're handing it out. Like, you know, people tossing coins. So anybody ever been to the, like the Dunwoody Fourth of July parade or something like that? Okay, so honest, show of hands, be truthful. How many of you go every year to a Fourth of July parade? Every single year. Excellent. So we, a few of you. If everyone on those floats was throwing out buckets of $100 bills, how many of you would go every year to the 4th of July? That's right. The whole city, it's four miles long. The whole city lines this road. In 29 BC, so 60 years before the death of Christ, right? there's people still alive who, who knew about this. Their parents certainly knew about it. Right? Augustus celebrates one of these, a triumph, because he beat Mark Anthony. So if you ever saw the movie Cleopatra, at the end of the movie, Cleopatra kills herself because she and Mark Anthony have lost to Augustus, and Augustus is going to drag her back to Rome and put her in this parade. She's going to be one of the captives, and she will not want to do that, so she kills herself first. Augustus captures Egypt. Do you know how rich Egypt is? He comes back 
And he has this parade through the streets of Rome. Two things happen the next day, according to the historians. One is housing prices skyrocket. I mean like four or five times what they used to be the day before. And the second is the interest rate on loans goes to zero. Because Augustus gave away so much money during this parade that he caused a banking crisis. He devalued the currency. Everyone in Rome was rich that day. So you wouldn't, if your house was worth 10,000 denarii, right? You're not going to sell it for 10,000 denarii because everybody's got 10,000 denarii. Every, I mean, even terribly, desperately poor people suddenly have years and years of wages. He devalued the currency. He gave away so many spoils. That's how when you do something big, when you beat an enemy, when you end a war in the Roman Empire, that's how you do it. And Paul the Apostle, when he writes to the Ephesians, it sounds kind of like he's echoing this. This is what he says about Jesus when Jesus comes back from the dead on Easter morning. It says, when Jesus ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to the people. That kind of sounds like the language of a triumph. You're, you're going up, you've got all the captives with you, you're passing out the loot. Now again, I want to read you how Jesus comes back. This is the first time anybody sees him. So he's killed on Friday. He's dead by Friday, late afternoon. It, because Friday at sundown is the Sabbath for the Jews in Jerusalem where he's killed, they can't prepare his body properly for burial. It would usually take hours and hours. Kind of like, you know, the Egyptians would mummify people. They'd do something similar. Wrap them all up, all these spices, so they just wrap his body up quickly and put it in a tomb Friday evening before the sun goes down. Because once the sun goes down, you can't do anything. And then they have to go home and, and have their Sabbath meal and do their Sabbath. And all day Saturday, you wait. Sunday morning. This is Sunday morning when a bunch of women have come to the tomb to finish the preparations. They brought the spices. They brought the linen. They're trying to figure out, okay, how we, there's a stone, that, the door. How we can get the door? Are we going to be strong enough to move that? They get there. And the, the stone that's the door, it, it's not there. It's been moved. Like, it's actually quite far. You know, all our pictures show it, like, right next door. It actually is far away. It, it's up and over the hill kind of thing. And the tomb's empty. Like, there's nothing in there. And so, of course, they think someone stole the body. I mean, seriously, what would you think, right? Somebody was buried on Friday. You come back on Sunday. The crypt is open. There's no body in there. Somebody stole the body. That's exactly what they think. This is John describing this in the Gospel of John. One of the women, Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she was looking into the tomb, and she saw there were two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been laid, one where his head would have been and one where his feet would have been. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing behind her, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Oh, sir, please, if you have taken him somewhere, will you tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him? And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, oh, wait, don't, don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Jesus is ascending back to God. He has been dead in the grave. He is headed back into the heavens. And again, according to Paul, it kind of sounds like one of these Roman parades. He's got captives. He's giving out gifts. He's all these. And he stops in the middle to visit one woman who is sobbing because she doesn't know where his body is. She thinks it's been so long. I want you to imagine you're in 29 BC. You're at these, you know, you're, one of the, you're, you're there at Augustus's triumph. They're paying his family the soldiers. They're passing out the loot, right? He's up. He's riding along. Suddenly he stops. Just stops the whole parade. Gets off his chariot. Goes over to the side of the road to some little girl who's crying, who's lost her family. Like, sits with her. You know, comforts her finds out where her family is, gets her back to her mom and dad, goes, gets back in his chariot, and starts back up again. You know, Jesus doesn't die like you expect him to die. He doesn't die either defiantly or serenely. He dies in agony. He doesn't come back from the dead like you expect him to come back either. He doesn't come back with swagger. He doesn't come back with trash talk. He does, he's not rocky, jumping around the ring. He's the victor. He's on his way back to the heavenly realms to see his father. And he stops for one crying woman. He's going to see her in less than 12 hours. This is Sunday morning. Right? We know Sunday evening after dinner, he will see her again. He'll, he'll come into the presence of all his disciples. Again, like in 12 hours, he's going to be there. But he stops, and he goes to her, and he reassures her, Mary, Mary. Now, you can't, you can't hug me yet. <laughs> like, you know, he, he's not, something's got to go on. He's got to go back to God first. Something's going on there. Like, but I'm right here. I'm not dead. I told you. I'm not dead. I'll be back. Like, literally, 12 hours later, I'll see you in a little bit. He stops on his way back to heaven, on his way back to see his father, to reassure one crying woman. You know, on Easter, like, like as Tim has said, as we has, have sung, we celebrate that, that Jesus drunk the cup of God's wrath for us. Because it says everyone's going to have to drink it. And Jesus drunk it for us. And we celebrate that Jesus has defeated death for us. That he died and he came back, you know, Jesus brought people back from the dead. Elijah and Elisha brought people back from the dead. Nobody brought Jesus back. Nobody comes to his tomb in the morning and says, roll the stone away, Jesus, come out. He's just not there. He brings himself back from the dead. We celebrate that death, Jesus died and death couldn't keep him. He came back. We celebrate that he drank the cup for us. We celebrate that he has defeated death. It couldn't keep him, and that means it can't keep us either. It is defeated. Remember that thing about a triumph? You had to end a war? Wow, Jesus has ended the war. Death has lost. It still gets to win a few battles here and there. But in the end, death has lost. We celebrate those two things as Christians. Now, there's a whole lot more people here that are normally here on a Sunday. So thank you. 
A lot of you have been dragged here by your family, by your friends, you're visiting, whatever. Thank you for coming. We appreciate it. We're glad that you are here. And if you are someone for whom, wow, life is just going great. You don't have any issues. You're not worried about it. I was talking to a, a girl at the coffee shop. I was hanging out and we were talking about God and she kind of smiled and said to me, hey, you know, that, that's great, but I'm fine. I'm doing great. I, I don't need God. Like, I, I'm glad that's good for you, but I, I don't need that. Just thank you, you know, and, and that was the end of the conversation. Wow, if that's you, right? I mean, life is good. Everything's together. You think this is all wonderful. Blessings on you. Thanks for coming. Like, happy Easter. We're glad you are here. But if that's not you, like, if you know, wow, there's something wrong. I mean, there's something wrong with this world. There's something wrong with death. People, like, death is just there's messed up. Our world is messed up. And our world is messed up because of me and because of you. About 100 years ago, a newspaper, British newspaper, sent out a whole bunch of very famous thinkers and writers and intellectuals, and they asked them, what's wrong with the world today? Right, tell us, you know, right, tell us, write us an essay, tell us what's wrong with the world today. And a Christian writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton sent them back their letter, you know, it's typed out, and under it, he, you know, the question is, what's wrong with the world today? And he wrote under it, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Like, if you know that, like, what's, what's wrong is in here? Solzhenitsyn says the line between good and evil it's not between that there's good people and evil people. It runs right through the heart of every single human being. Good and evil is in all of us. If you are here this morning and you know, wow, something is messed up. Like something's messed up in me. That, that what people say to me shouldn't bother me that much, but it does. It shouldn't make me that mad that this happens, but it does. I shouldn't be this selfish, but I am. If you know there's something wrong, then wow, I have got good news for you. That's what the word gospel means. Good news. This guy, this guy who drank the cup, this guy who came back from the dead, and he does not come back with swagger. This guy was kind and generous and merciful while he lived. And when he was given the choice between leaving or suffering and being just torn apart and abandoned by his father. For us, he chose to stay and be abandoned for us. And then he comes back and he's not mad and he's not upset. He's not walking around. There's this verse in the book of Hebrews that says that Jesus did everything right. He was tempted like we are, but he never messed up. Therefore, he knows how hard it is to be human. And I think, wow, if I did everything right and I never messed up and I'm the one who suffered for it, oh, I'd be mad. <laughs> I'd be mad at the rest of you who should have suffered for it. <laughs> Jesus isn't mad, Scripture says. Again, he's stopping on his triumphal return to the heavens to comfort one crying woman. He is just as generous and just as kind and just as merciful. After he died... And then came back from the dead. As he was his whole life. As Christians, what we say is, Jesus is Lord. We don't say Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my buddy, Jesus is a good guy, Jesus is my helper. Although all those things are true and he is. 
what we say, our confession, our creed is, Jesus is Lord. And to everyone who has ever said that, to everyone who has ever submitted to him, then he drinks the cup for them, and you will never have to drink it. And he conquers death for them, and death didn't keep him, and it won't keep you. And that is all he asks. That is what he says. You don't got to pay anything. You don't got to do it. You don't got to do some great deed. You don't got to slay some dragon or conquer some giant. You have to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. So, again, if you're here and life is great and, and everything is all together, blessings on you. But I'm going to warn you. I'm willing to bet you know guys like I do, right? Perfectly healthy people who one day just dropped dead. Because it turned out they, they, were, they were full of cancer, but they didn't know it. Or it turned out they had this, you know, they call it the widow maker, right? This condition on the, their aorta, of their part of their heart. But they'd never go to the doctor. Because <laughs> if you go to the doctor, the doctor might tell you something you don't want to hear. So they never go to the doctor and they never knew. And they just seemed perfectly healthy. Until one day, they weren't. And they died. If you are here and life is great and everything is fine and there's no worries, then I'm really sorry. Because you're just like those guys who will never go to the doctor. Because you don't want to hear it. You don't want to know that, yeah, something is terribly, terribly wrong. But if you know, wow, something's not right, then all you have to say is, yes, Jesus is Lord. And that's what Paul tells the Romans. I mean, these aren't my, they're the words of Jeff. These are the words of the Bible. Paul says, if you acknowledge Jesus is Lord, if you believe God raised him from the dead, then you're his Anyone who says to him, Jesus, be my Lord, he says, done. You are mine. You are, you are in my kingdom. You are my subject. I have drunk the cup for you. You will never have to do that. I have defeated death for you. Death will not hold you. You will be in my kingdom forever. To everyone who has ever said that, Jesus has always said yes. Always and there are billions down through the ages who have. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us as I close. I'm going to be grateful to Jesus for who he is and what he's done. This is the most holy day of the year for us as Christians. If you know that there's something wrong, then you need a, you need a Lord. And he's a really good one. Wow. He's a really, really good Kai, he's a Lord who stops his triumphal parade to come and comfort one crying woman who he's going to see anyway in 12 hours. Because that's what he's like. If you need a Lord, wow, this is a good one. So I'm going to pray. If you've never said Jesus is Lord, pray it along with me. You can do it right here this morning. So come, pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Oh my goodness, thank you. Of all days today, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you could have walked away. Like you saw it. You saw the cup. The, the cup that makes men stagger. The cup that drives them crazy. The cup that kills them and drives them from your presence forever. Drives them from 
anything good or kind or generous. You saw that. We say it in the creed, Lord, you were crucified, you died, you were buried, you descended into hell. Jesus, you saw that. You begged your father, was there any other way? And he said, no. No, everyone must drink this cup one day. And so you said yes, and you drunk it for us. Thank you. We are so grateful you could have walked away. You could have just walked out of the Kidron Valley and kept right on walking. No one ever would have found you. Thank you that you stayed. You told Pilate, the, the Roman governor, in your, your trial that you could call tens of thousands of angels. You could have come down off that cross anytime you wanted. Nothing could hold you there except your willingness to drink the cup for us. Thank you. Lord, we are so grateful and thank you that you did not stay dead. You did not just say, I, I will do this for you and then die and go back to heaven. You, you have defeated death itself. And so the scriptures say that we don't grieve like the rest of the world grieves because we have hope. We know that death will never hold any of your people ever. All of us will be reunited one day in your kingdom because Jesus, you are Lord. You are Lord of the whole universe. Everyone one day will bend the knee to you. Every mouth will confess you are Lord. But oh Lord Jesus, we do it today. We do it with joy. We bend our knee, we, we open our mouths, we praise you. You are Lord. And so I pray for all my brothers and sisters, all of us who have ever done that, we reaffirm that today, Jesus. We reaffirm that you are Lord and you are a good and a gracious and a kind Lord. And for anyone here who has never done that, but who knows that they need a Lord, that they need someone to figure life out, they need someone to drink the cup, they need someone to defeat death. They can't do these things themselves. Jesus, I pray for everyone here that all of us would say to you, Jesus, you are Lord. We confess it with our mouths. We believe in our hearts that you, you came back from the dead. That, that it, it, it wasn't a metaphor. It, it, it wasn't just some picture that we paint of new life. You were truly dead. And then you were truly alive, walking around, breathing, eating, talking to people, stopping on your way back to heaven to reassure Mary that everything would be okay, that you would see her again, that everything you said was true. Jesus, we, all of us who know you, we reaffirm that. You are Lord. For anyone who doesn't, but who wants to, then we say that together, Jesus. You are Lord. We know that you are Lord, that you have risen from the dead, that all of this is true. Jesus, we praise you, we worship you. That's exactly what we're going to do now. We're going to praise you. We're going to continue and sing of all you have done for us. And, and then Jesus, we're gonna stop. Even though we could sing all day and not even begin to thank you enough, you are a gracious and a kind Lord. You do not tell us 
that we must spend every moment of every day together singing to you. Thank you. You deserve that. And yet you don't require it. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Holy Spirit, come. Fill this place. Fill us as we worship our risen Lord on today, the holiest of all days, the day when we remember that Jesus, you died. You drank the cup of God's wrath and then you defeated death itself. A Roman general got a triumph for defeating an enemy and stopping a war. You have defeated the enemy. You have won the war, the war against death. Thank you. Jesus, we praise and we worship you. He is risen. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing again.